everybody. Welcome to the third episode of The Three States of Sound. Uh, it has not been uh, as long since our last episode as it was between our first and second. We are absolutely glad to be back. Uh, before we get started, how's everybody doing? Derek and Josh? I'm doing okay, even though I don't have any alcoholic beverages with me tonight. Um, <laughs> I think I'll be able to get through this. Um, no, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good too. I have a I have a little bit of Sailor Jerry's rum and some Diet Mountain Dew. I'm just being classy as hell over here. <laughs> just just a little bit of a backstory here. We've been talking about now for the last several weeks uh, about uh, introing a little bit of a what it started off as what is Derek drinking? Because Derek seemed to have a drink in hand when we were when we were setting up or talking about these episodes, and and hopefully it'll evolve into a little bit of a a more casual, having a drink, having yeah, this discussion. I think you should be clear, John, uh, that uh, Derek is a mixologist of, mm. of high caliber. <laughs> Not that yes. he just always has a drink in his hand. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a connoisseur of fine cocktails, uh, unlike myself. Uh, but yes, you should, yes, everyone should follow Derek's food and beverage wizardry because it's amazing. But yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Just want to make sure people don't think Derek is over there just drinking his blues away. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and actually, that that is a great point for for everybody who's listening. Uh, uh, Derek does have a great uh, sort of other life on social, other than this Three States of Sound podcast. Uh, he's also an amazing uh, food blogger uh, and, and 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 mixologist, uh, and also a lifestyle blogger. So please check him out. Um, uh, you can find him. His 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 tag and his link should be right there in the post. So please please check him out. You'll you'll be hungry all the time though if you if you uh, spend too much time on his Instagram feed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stay stay hungry. Uh, stay hungry. <laughs> stay hungry. Um, so guys, this week, uh, last week or last time, uh, we of course had the conversation about what is happening culturally and politically in this country uh, since the murder of George Floyd, but really uh, even going back further than that, uh, these moments of injustice in this country and racism. And as we, we have been talking about where we would take our next conversation, one topic that, that, that seems to be a pretty consistent theme is the role of politics in music and specifically specifically that um, the role that politics has played in our own music evolution. Uh, for me, I was born in 1972, solidly Gen X. It seems like every period of my life, of my music life, whether I was there or not, somehow it was informed by music, uh, sorry, uh, informed by politics, whether it is uh, you know, folk music or it is you know, proto-punk, early, er, early punk rock of the late 1960s or punk rock or DIY um, in the 80s, there seemed to be some political mes message that ran through all of those moments. And I think uh, for all of us, uh, at least as we've had this, this conversation over the last week or so, uh, that seems to be the case for all of us. So um, there, there, of course, is the conversation about sort of overtly political statements. And there are plenty of bands who utilize their platform to express these political statements. There's also the politics of gender. There's the politics of sexuality. There are all of these cultural 
moments and cultural opportunities to kind of mix in a political message with music. And um, I really started thinking about this when it's sort of a funny story that I'm sure all of you had, had heard. Um, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, he had been called out on social, not for the first time. Um, in 2017, somebody had made a comment. Uh, I, I believe what the, what, the, what the comment was, was another successful musician instantly becomes a political expert, to which he responded with his political credentials, being a political science major who attended Harvard University. And I think that uh, that understanding that there is, there's little separation between the person and the art, especially in contemporary music. And I think it's become even more so in the, uh, in the last several decades where those messages are, are more explicit than maybe they would have been at one time. And this may be just a fact of the evolving music industry where artists do have an opportunity to say what they want, damn the record companies if they don't like it, right? Because uh, they do have their own way of, uh, of expressing that art without the support of a record company. So guys, before I keep going on and on here, um, just sort of like high level, like where did politics and music kind of converge for you uh, in, your, in your own music life? Oh, man. Um, geez. Uh, every decade. I mean, you know, uh, I think for me, um, I think the, the time that I probably became uh, aware of uh, uh, music with a political theme or uh, was probably uh, in rap and, and R&B music. So that was probably my first uh, introduction um, into hearing those types of messages come through the speaker. Oddly enough, all right, so when you're thinking of political music, uh, I think when I was a kid, there were some things that are very political, but I didn't think they were. I just thought it was a good song, like uh, uh, Proud to Be an American, right? Uh, who was that, Ray Stevens? Who sings that? Maybe I'm getting that. I wrong. don't know. But, you know, I remember, you know, being a little kid, loving the 4th of July and you know, proud to be an American. And it was like, yeah, it's patriotic. It's a good song, you know. Uh, and now, as I'm a little older, Lee Greenwood. There you go. Yep. That's it. Ray Stevens sang about squirrels in the Mississippi church, which is also <laughs> political in, in its own way. <laughs> and The Streak, which is about, you know, getting away from body shaming. Uh, body positivity. Ray Stevens was way ahead of his time. But Lee Greenwood, uh, you know, I, I remember really loving that song and just being this super patriotic uh, kid. And I still am super patriotic. But I think where I started to see music as a political weapon or as a, a tool for influence and, and you know, uh, disruption was actually with Rage Against the Machine. That was the first time because they are so overt in, you know, the name of the band and the the lyrics that are in there, like there's no questioning, like none, none of it is hidden. Like it's just like, bam, I'm going to tell you some political shit and, you, and you're going to like you know, blow your 17 year old hillbilly mind. And uh, so like that's, that's the band that first really kind of sparked um, more of a political, you know, even interest. Like I wasn't even really interested in politics until that. 
band came up and coincided with, you know, moving into like higher level history classes where you start to kind of delve into the truth of what happened in things, even though in public education, uh, I didn't get the full truth as we had talked about last week, but, um, yeah, Rage Against the Machine was big eye opener. Uh, and it, it helped me, you know, go back and see what songs are co- considered political that may not, you know, like at first listen to a naive ear don't seem political, you know, like imagine by John Lennon, like, Oh, it just seems like a, you know, a happy little hippie song. Oh, wouldn't it be great? You know, everybody love each other. Uh, but then when you dive into it more and you put it into the context of, of what all was going on at that time, like, you know, there's some, some people hate that song because it is too, you know, hippy dippy. It's, it's, you know, they take it as anti religion, uh, which maybe it is, but like, it's just a song. Like, why, why, why did you get mad about it? You know? Yeah. And that, um, that anger that people expressed is really interesting to me because it seems like, and maybe it's just sort of the polarized nature of this country right now, and especially uh, polarized politically, that there seems to be that anger that has been reintroduced in how people are listening to music, where, uh, where they are hearing a political message from somebody. And, and I, you know, I hate to I hate to pin this on one side of the political spectrum versus the other, but it seems to me that uh, on the conservative right side, there seems to be this anger that's expressed at people that have overtly liberal, potentially liberal statements to make in their music uh, that they have no business talking about those. They have no business lending a voice to uh, to a political conversation, which in in and of itself is an absolutely ridiculous statement to make, especially if you consider yourself some sort of constitutional uh, uh, fighter and, 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 you know, that, that, that you don't believe in sort of this, this free expression in music. But it seems to be that there is this, this reintroduction of anger and sort of not understanding, well, why aren't you just entertaining me? Why aren't you just here to make me happy and, and, and sort of make me laugh and, and, and dance? And these are messages that, you know, we talked about last week that somebody like Ornette Coleman had taken and absolutely rejected. And I think that uh, you, you saw that with later, uh, with later jazz musicians, certainly in the 60s, where there was this free expression of emotion and anger. Um, but it seems interesting that while you think that, 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 that music fans and music listeners will evolve over time to understand there's a greater cultural importance that's going on than just a piece of music that doesn't always seem to be the case. I think what's crazy is that, and like what I think John was kind of touch on earlier, um, is that this, there's like zero tolerance. There's a, there's a lot more tolerance coming from the left. Uh, um, I think with as far as the expression, everyone having a voice, that type of thing. And there seems to be like zero tolerance. Uh, and, and like you said, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the, the far right seem to be the ones who are espousing uh, their patriotism, but they, it's only in, it's only, they're only giving lip service to that patriotism because patriotism uh, really, it really means that. I mean, if you look at, um, Colin Kaepernick, he's 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 actually exercising, you know, his patriotism, his 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 constitutional right to kneel, 
but then you have the far right who have zero tolerance. They say, you know, they, they want to hold the constitution up, but then they don't want to actually read it. Right. I think it's just really important that it would be awesome if everyone agreed that dissent uh, is patriotic when the intent is to progress, you know, the, the lives of, of everyone that is American. Like the right can't own patriotism and the left can't own freedom of speech. You know, like there's, there's gotta mm -hmm. be uh, a meeting in the middle, although I hope it's much further to the left than the middle uh, personally, but yeah, it's just sort of like, what is the definition of patriotic? And to that effect, to, to that effect, like what is the definition, like what makes a song political? versus just controversial mm. like there's kind of a thin line between there yeah th th there is and and i think that um that's where some other less overt political statements come in for instance if you talk about glam rock right there is a political statements that that was being made by you know um mark bolan and, and and david bowie that 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 there was this culture war going going on and 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 how you look and how um how you didn't conform to gender norms was making a political statement but it was a less overt political statement you fast forward a little bit ahead and for me the beginning was really in the late 80s early 90s i think you'll all remember that following the reagan years and the first bush years there was this effort on the part of uh, you know, people solidly, again, solidly Gen X uh, of that age to make some sort of impact. I, I do think that if you look back on it, there was a lot of sort of carryover guilt that, that some of us had for the kind of failing that our parents had, 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 um, had experienced, uh, especially in the late 60s. And so there was this, uh, this feeling that, you know, it was time. It was time to push out the old white man authority uh, authority figure. And there was the Rock the Vote movement. There was the moment, there was the movement to just to get people out to vote in 92. And it seemed like every concert that I went to during that period had a Rock the Vote booth, uh, you know, sign up, um, sign up to vote. Didn't matter what political affiliation you were. And actually, that was a great thing about it, too, is that they were very careful at that time not to uh, not to pressure anybody into voting a certain way. It was simply, please register to vote. Um, but a lot of the shows at that time uh, carried political statements. And I remember you know, seeing Sonic Youth or seeing Rage Against the Machine at the Tibetan Freedom Concert in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, Sonic Youth during their Dirty Tour in, in, in 92, I mean, that was one that it seemed like every time I saw them on television, there was, or every time I saw them live, there was a mention of uh, of politics, and certainly even in their music, there was you know there were mentions of Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond, uh, and uh, for me that seemed to be kind of the moment where I realized that this wasn't just a uh, this wasn't just a, a brief moment that the musicians that I was listening to had something to say, uh, and it would certainly continue for years and decades after that. Um, but this, I do also remember though, Derek, you had mentioned liberals 
seemingly more tolerant than conservatives. Um, there were conservative and Christian punk rock groups that I remember some people of my age who, cl- who said that they were conservative Republicans were listening to. Um, I did not know much about it. I don't know if you guys, Josh, I think mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, you were into Christian punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say I was ever, you know, conservative when it comes to social issues. I've always been a bleeding heart liberal in that, but uh, I was much closer to the church and did my best to stay away from secular music because that's what I thought uh, I should do. Uh, And so finding that those Christian punk rock things uh, was, was really good for me to be able to get into like aggressive music. But what's weird is like, you would think that that Christian rock is just all like talking about Jesus and, you know, like sort of praise music with a, you know, distorted guitar. But there was actually a lot in that, that growing up in, you know, small town, you know, Oklahoma and Arkansas, uh, that because those bands were coming out of places like Seattle uh, and LA and, and New York, like the, the acceptance of say, you know, homosexuality or, uh, you know, things that for a Southern Baptist were like, Oh no, don't even talk about that. Like just pray about it. Uh, like they would talk more openly about that. So there was more political, uh, influence in that Christian rock scene than, than what I think, you know, you might just assume there was. So Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, at, at its core, it was still, you know, punk rock or hardcore. It's just, they also happened to love Jesus and wanted to work that in. So, uh, and then, you know, a lot of the bands ended up moving more towards secular stuff as, as the band members got older. And you hear this a lot about Christian bands who are like, even the more praise band types that after, you know, 20 years of touring, the lead singer's like, Hey, I'm not feeling this anymore. I don't think I'm a Christian. So, um, It, yeah. Sorry, getting yeah. a little bit off of the politics and into the religion. No, 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 no. Well, they, they're definitely well, tied I, together I, in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and, well and, think, and, and in this country, it's it's difficult yeah, to, yeah. to separate I, the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're I think they're 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 definitely uh, consistent bedfellows for sure. Because I th- I don't think you can really separate the two. Um, I just think that the like the current mood, like the current uh, permutation of of to me, I just feel like the word liberal is this. If you you know, it seems to be it seems to be like a dirty word for uh, a lot of uh, people who it says it's just like conservative is like non-compassionate, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then and then. And then the liberals have a lot of compassion. They have a lot of empathy uh, for their fellow man, and they just want to make things better. And it seems like the conservative is, which is crazy because I feel like a lot of people who who, who wear the label, who want to label themselves uh, conservative, are, are basically voting against their own self-interest in, mm-hmm. in, in a way. Because a lot of the music that I have a I have a I have a coworker that I um, 
I used to work with. Um, and, and, and he's, uh, he's be like a little hellraiser, uh, you know, when he was, when he was, uh, when he was younger and now for some reason he, he's a staunch, uh, Trump supporter. And I think it's so weird because he made a statement. We we're talking about Dave Chappelle. I had asked him if he had seen the new, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, series on Netflix. And, and he's one of these guys that we talked about before, you know, uh, almost in the realm of you know, LeBron just shut up and dribbled. He mm-hmm. said, "Well, I liked him before. Now he's he's not funny. He's too political." And mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it kind of I just looked at him. This <laughs> like mm-hmm. this guy's, you know. And then he, we we got into this conversation where he he liked he likes rap music. He like he likes the eighties, nineties rap music or nineties rap music. And you know. He's a, he's a white guy, and he was like, he was just, he really wanted, he goes, man, I, I, you know, in a truck by myself, I, you know, I can say the N-word, and he really wanted to, it was almost like a badge of honor that he wanted to have, he wanted me to give him permission, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to say it, you know, and I'm like, no, dude, <laughs> no, not, yeah. it's not going to happen, but, uh, but this is, this is where we, we have these people who and this is what I think a, a lot of it uh, when you talk about white privilege, people who just feel that they they should have access to everything. I can do whatever I want to do without uh, consequence, no matter what. Um, and it kind it's kind of it's kind of crazy because on the one hand he likes the music, he likes the culture, but he doesn't want to stand up for the rights of the people who are making that particular music and who represent present that culture which is which i find i think that's more prevalent than i think a lot of people realize oh yeah yeah 100%. absolutely and and you know i, I know a lot of conservatives and, and i have a lot of really conservative friends that um that are the same you know in that same kind of ballpark right where i don't think they're racist i i truly don't but they do things that are racist because they they just are unwilling to uh, admit that that white privilege. Uh, and if they hear white privilege, they're like, uh, "I worked really hard." Are you saying I didn't have a hard life? You know, and just sort of that that trope that goes in. You know, uh, it's like it's not about you know that it, it's just your white privilege isn't that you had everything handed to you. It's just that color wasn't one of the things you had to worry about, you know, and not understanding that and feeling that they're being called out for almost cheating uh, from just from being white, like by someone saying they have white privilege, it's diminishing them. And then when you couple that with the conservative ethos of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, I'm a self-made man, uh, like the value of hard work and the success being the pinnacle of human achievement, monetary success or any kind of power. Like it's, it's, it's funny because I think in their, in their heart, they want to do the right thing, but they're blocked by this, uh, inability to express true empathy and putting yourself into that position because they've never actually experienced uh, what they need to be fighting for. So it's easier for people to ignore that it exists 
or to diminish the severity of its existence. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, um, we had we had we had brought this. Well, yes, and <laughs> you asking if that makes sense is a perfect illustration of why these conversations need to continue to take place. And I think that if there is a confusion on anybody's part, one great film to revisit, and we brought this up last week, but Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is an incredible film. And, and, and I think that it, it's actually probably even more relevant now than right. it was when it was released because we have now gone through uh, nearly 30 years or, well, 30 years. 30 years of this, what am I about to say, of white America becoming more comfortable with black culture being a dominant part of what we see day in and day out, whether it's athletes or music. And that, that, that piece, I think, is, just, is, is a little bit what Josh is talking about, that you have people that they've been able to take maybe some of their, their uh, what can be seen as sort of like racist uh, thoughts, and they've been able to conveniently kind of mix them into this belief that, well, I am part of this culture. It is part of me, and, um, and, and, and racism doesn't exist anymore, or, or there's been enough time that's passed. And I think that if you look back at that film now, that same conversation was taking place in 1989, I believe, um, uh, and 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 it's just not true. I mean, there is an existence for people of color that no matter how much you feel that, well, they've seen success. I mean, this sounds suspiciously like the, you know, how long has it been since slavery ended? I mean, that 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 is what that statement sounds like. It's like, well, there's a lot of successful black people now. So why are we still having the conversation about racism? Well, it it does still exist, and those experiences can't be um, can't be dismissed simply because black culture is a larger part of the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Derek, uh, for you as as we're as we're discussing this. Um, there's a question, and I'm going to sort of stumble into this question a little bit. Uh, you are someone who listens to a lot of alternative rock, a lot of um, a lot of sort of like punk inspired or or or, or uh, post punk inspired music. That I think for um, for a lot of people, there still is in 2020 there still is that moment when you see a black band or a band comprised of predominantly black members where there's that, there, there, there's that huh moment. There's that, or there's even that moment of like, oh, that's great. They're a, they're, they're, they're a black band who doesn't play a, a sort of historically black music. And even um, a band like, like Bad Brains, I think experienced that and they, they uh, members of Bad Brains have said that you know there was an understanding that they were a black punk rock band, a black hardcore punk rock band. At, at that, um, for when when you think about that fact, or or, or I'm just curious to get your take. Uh, is there a political message in being a black musician 
in that space, in that sort of alternative rock space or punk rock space? Is there a political statement being made by not acknowledging that you are a black band? Yes and no. Uh, people are making a bigger point uh, when, when black bands do things that uh, some people deem to be not black enough. So what, what happens is that there's a disconnect because people just don't know their musical history. Because we know that even, even, even bands now, if you ask most, uh, most people, uh, black or white people, they don't understand that even most, most, you look at rock, you look at R&B, you look at rap, you look at even some elements of, uh, of folk and country, they all have their roots in the blues. If you look at bands like the Beatles, Jeff Tull, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Doors, these guys were heavily steeped in blues music, which was historically black music. Um, there would not be any Beatles, there would not be any Rolling Stones, there wouldn't be any Creedence, Clearwater, Revival, and all these bands like that without the blues. And so when you see people, when you see people who don't, want to uh, have a problem with black people playing uh, punk or whatever, or rock, uh, air quotes, then they just don't really have, if anything, they're reclaiming or restaking, uh, you know, ground that has kind of just vanished, that no one, they don't understand the connection between all of those genres of music that we think they're kind of independent and kind of grew up, sprung out of the, the earth by themselves they are all connected to black music. So yeah. if anyone has a right to play whatever, punk, rock, whatever, then it is a lot of African-American musicians because that's our history, you know? Mm. So that's my take on it. Can I ask you, do your, um, do your sons have a diverse uh, interest in music across all genres the way that you yeah. do? They yeah, because they, they grew up listening to everything that I was listening to. <laughs> so uh, they've kind of gone on their, you know, of course, they've gone on to some of their own things. But uh, my one of my twins, he's he listens to shoegaze. He listens to punk. He listens to rap. He listens to him and I attended uh, a Bon Iver concert uh, last year. So it's, you know, we're we're pretty we're pretty fluid when it comes to, to music. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. That's awesome. That so. is, that's it's very awesome. It's, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly been a, a very interesting sort of evolution of like sort of the music fan. Cause for me, I grew up in suburban Orange County, California. Uh, I, I, um, I'm well aware of my Mexican roots. I though was able to integrate into, for lack of a better way to express to, to, to say this, I was able to integrate into white culture pretty easily. Um, and so being at, you know, at venues, seeing bands, being at some small clubs or, or, or big venues, um, you know, for the, for, for the most part, there were a lot of white males uh, to a lesser extent, white females as well, but very little people of color. But <laughs> um, when I started to see more people of color 
is when uh, there was ba- bands like Interpol um, and bands that maybe were influenced by like the Smiths or Morrissey. And it's interesting that through a lot of those white bands, I started to learn more about my own culture and learning about uh, why Mexicans or why people of Mexican descent were such big fans of those bands. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Josh, I think we've had this conversation yeah. before. Um, I want, yeah, and I want to know about Morrissey. <laughs> like being, why, why is he why, so popular with like the LA, uh, you know, <laughs> Hispanics? Like, I, I think it's awesome, but it's fascinating. Yeah, well, so I've, I've, explored, I've explored this conversation with a mutual friend that we have. Uh, her name is Monique, uh, Monique Frasto. Uh, amazing. Actually, her cousin plays bass in Morrissey's touring band. Uh, and Monique, Monique and I have this kind of, Exactly. <laughs> yes. Holler. Um, so so you, actually, we should have him on the show, and he can explain this better than I can, because he's been around those fans uh, for years now. So he probably has a better understanding than I do. However, what I've learned a little bit over time is there's there's this there's this interesting optimistic pessimism. <laughs> there's it, that, that sort of permeates throughout uh, um, Mexican culture, and it's this it's this strange belief, unfortunately, that you that your ceiling is only so high, your ceiling of success is only so high. However, there's a lot of joy to be found in that understanding, meaning that you can enjoy life understanding that you may not accomplish all that is the American dream or that you see your white friends accomplishing. Now, it sounds very sad. And it also sounds a little misguided. And, 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 and even on my part, it might even sound a little ignorant because I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't feel that way. But if you think about Morrissey, his, his, his sort of, although in a hilarious way, there is this, there is this sad element to his music that also has that same kind of ceiling. And I don't know. I think I've read enough or or, or listened enough uh, uh, to understand what it was like in the uh, the '70s in Manchester, England. And it, it sounded pretty drab. It sounded pretty pretty sort of dire and sad. And I think there may have been that same belief that your ceiling is only so high. So why not enjoy it while you're in that place? Um, and I think a lot of Mexicans and a lot of Mexican Americans sort of work with that understanding, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe. Very fascinating. I think. Yes. I think it's the hair. You I think mean, it's the dude has red <laughs> hair. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of Mexican, uh, Mexican American Elvis fans as well, and and certainly there's that there's that image, there's that rockabilly image that has uh, that Josh, you living in Southern California, I'm sure you saw plenty of. Mexican Americans who looked rockabilly. That oh, yeah. was their that was their yeah. look. Um, well, I, and you you had that look. <laughs> uh, I've tried to grow a pompadour uh, at least six times. Like dedicated, was growing it out, have the pomade, was trying to train it to get it to look right. Uh, I have some friends who are in the rockabilly scene that just pull it off amazingly. My hair doesn't do it. So then I pivot and I say, I'm going to grow Willie Nelson braids. And then my hair gets a little <laughs> bit longer. It starts to get all greasy and I look like my sister with a beard. So and <laughs> then I shave it off. Uh, and yeah, so I've never actually achieved either of my ideal hairstyles, which is the pompadour and Willie Nelson braids. 
So thanks for bringing that up, John. Speaking of the Smiths and Morrissey influence, uh, there seems to be a, a, a correlation between uh, Mexican culture and uh, goth culture. Yes. And yeah. And uh, and I know that one of the band, I have a buddy, he listens to uh, uh, a lot of uh, like Bauhaus and Peter Murphy and, and that type of thing, because, you know, that I mean, he's pretty much the godfather of goth. Um, but yeah, but I just wonder where is the intersection uh, between the, the culture, uh, youth, Hispanic uh, youth culture and uh, golf culture? I mean, where is the intersection? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, I think that his name is, uh, I believe his name is Armando, Armando. Um, again, we have to have him on the show to understand this, but it's not, well, there, I'm sure there are plenty of people that we can talk to and understand this, but he would be a fascinating kind of guess. Um, Mexican Americans, especially sort of LA youth culture, there is that that there is that attraction to goth music. What I want to understand a little bit better is that it seems to have been um, transferred to uh, and, and and is stronger in people that are first or second generation Mexicans. And my understanding is that that fascination or that interest in goth culture and goth music is even stronger in Mexico than it is in uh, in LA or in the United States. So I think uh, I I think I think we need to I want to understand this a little bit better. Uh, And I think that uh, Armando might Armando might be a a great person to to ask that question. So we definitely I have a theory, though. I have a theory. I think that because of the the big like the Day of the Dead, uh, kind of culture. Uh, there's some cross, there's some intersection, or maybe there's some because goth is very kind of dark, kind of uh, that that kind of uh, uh, morbidity kind of thing. And I think that uh, maybe because if you look at the like like the when people paint their faces, there's kind of like a correlation. You can kind of see maybe where there's kind of kind of like some segue from one to the other would make that a little more easier i think yeah i i I could see that but but you know at least in terms of the aesthetics of the day of the dead stuff and uh you know more of the hardcore paint your face super swedish black metal type goth uh the king diamonds if you will uh, but what I think maybe is, uh, is that Mexican culture and music, uh, from a layman's outside point of view, seems so vibrant, colorful. It's about being happy. It's a lot of bouncy tones and things like that, like, uh, uh, you know, a lot of accordions and things like that. And so maybe going goth is just full counterculture. And I, you know, I know some, some goths uh and it's they it's not it's not necessarily angst driven for for a goth it's more about finding the beauty in gloom and sort of just this uh a comfort in being sad you know like like mm, yeah you can own and control things around you because you expect everything to suck and everyone is shit and 
I'm just going to be unhappy. And that's what makes me happy. It's this weird, you know, sort of intersection because some of the most goth people I know are actually just like super friendly, kind of bubbly people when you get them to themselves. But it's just like, that's a protective layer around them that they project out. So I wonder if it's just staking a claim in the ground for their individuality uh, away from the Mexican culture, but not fully assimilated into American culture uh, or, you know, sort of standard white American uh, convertible Porsche culture uh, that the Alex Keatons of the world from that time, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like, like it just seems like a really interesting uh, choice to make. And I'll just say uh, when I lived in Osaka, Japan, there's this part of town called Amimura, which is like America village. And there's like every kind of subculture that you can imagine worldwide has some sort of representation there. And I found like an East LA, uh, like Cholo. That's not, that's not a bad word. Is it John? No, it's not. It's, okay. All right, cool. Uh, but like a Cholo shop, you know, where they had like t-shirts with like low riders and clowns with tears drawn on them. Like just like, sort of prison art and Morrissey t-shirts and the girl behind the counter, like you would think she was, you know, of Mexican descent, but she was full on Japanese, but like she had the bangs and the hoops and the suspenders and like, like totally dedicated to that subculture. Uh, and I saw some like 64 Impalas on three wheel motion coming around these <laughs> tiny little streets. It was a fascinating place. Like it was awesome to just see how well they nailed East LA, you know, Cholo uh, culture. And then they had some of the Morrissey in there. Not so much the goth, but yeah, really, really, really wild. Yeah. I, well, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. No, but I think that it's all, I mean, I think that all that uh, expression, that youthful, um, how people can, uh, can, can, can take something that is geologically uh, distant, but be able to find segues. Uh, and I think a lot of that has, to, and and it is a political statement. It is that counterculture. It's not. I'm not going to be like, you know, my the straight laced uh, conservative or whatever. They're they're regaling against that defiance of authority or uh, that defiance of I don't want to be that way or I'm going to find my own way. And that is usually expressed upon you know when people are taking on a different type of identity, and that identity is expressed through the the music that they listen to, uh, the clothes they wear, and they have to you know th this is the you're doing a form of defiance. I will I will wear this. I will do this. I will shame my parents. <laughs> you know, uh, but it is that political statement. It, it is people making these small or large political statements with their lives for a period of time. Sometimes it's a phase and sometimes it's something that they just carry on throughout uh, their entire life. Um, but I find that to be very interesting. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a great, <laughs> there was a question I was going to ask to, to, to sort of, sort of wrap this up, but, um, and Derek, you just answered it perfectly. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to insert my question before what you said. Um, but, I think that some people can easily dismiss or they feel like they can easily dismiss a lot of these conversations that are taking place because they feel like there are, there is youth culture and then there's political culture. And when we were talking early on about liberals versus conservatives, I think a lot of times maybe the reason that conservatives are so resistant 
to this, uh, to whatever a young liberal is saying is because in their minds, they're talking about political culture. They're talking about real politics that have real effect on people. And they believe that liberals are talking about youth culture. This is something that you're going to grow out of. This is an idea that you have. I mean, you hear the argument constantly about how colleges and college professors are brainwashing young people. And this is why they become liberals. And I think that now with contemporary politics and contemporary culture, the two of those, the youth culture and the political culture, have, been, have, 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 have converged in such a way that you cannot separate the two. And in fact, there's so much at stake now that you'd be foolish to try to separate the two and expect that you can take the, that you can see, that you can criticize this, you can criticize these moments and these conversations as simply being young people expressing themselves in a foolish way. And I think that for decades, that is the path that a lot of people have tried to take. And it certainly seems like uh, do that at your own peril now because there are more important things that are being talked about than the clothes that are being worn and the music that's being listened to. Yes, it is important. And yes, to, to, to young people, it's important, their music. But these political statements that are being made, I think, and I could be completely wrong, but I think that they are now sitting outside of just simply a conversation about expression in music. I mean, this there there are real moments that are being created. There are real um, there are real things that are being talked about that are bigger than just youth culture. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. <laughs> I really enjoyed this a lot, guys. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, we will, like always. Uh, well, you know, first of all, do, do you guys have anything just to kind of to kind of wrap up here? I don't want to I don't want to be the last voice in this. If there if there's anything left that you guys want to say? Uh, well, I was just going to say we should recommend some songs. Yeah, if we can. And then also, uh, I heard from a fan uh, who happens to be my brother, but I'm sure we have other fans out there uh, that he he didn't quite. Uh, the, the the playlist wasn't front and center for him. So anyone who's listening, there is an associated playlist where we pull in the songs that we've mentioned and some of the artists, and then we add to that. So it's a really good listening companion or a good catapult into a deeper dive into the rabbit hole that is eclectic music <laughs> collection. Uh, so yeah, please, please look for that. It's um We'll put the link uh, wherever we can, uh, but you can search Three States of Sound uh, playlist on Spotify and find it that way as well. So please, please give a listen. Yeah, please do. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. The links will be in the post that we put up for both of those. Uh, we are at Three States of Sound with a three, with a number three, uh, instead of the word three on both of those platforms. So please look for us there. Let's try to all continue the conversation uh, on those platforms if, if, if we can. Uh, this, this is not a conversation that just ends here. This is, you know, for us, a, uh, a starting point. Um, Derek, before we leave, sorry, I didn't want to cut off there. No, I was listening to Public Enemy. I'm sorry. 
Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Derek's already diving into the playlist. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that it, it honestly, if you're a part of, I, I think black culture, you're kind of living the playlist. Uh, Cause we have so many <laughs> from Marvin Gaye to Ray Charles to every, every decade, every generation. Cause we've been fighting this fight for a long time. So, um, the playlist is, is, is front and center. Uh, we kind of grew up with it. And I think that if you are a minority or a disenfranchised group in America that you kind of, uh, if you're not kind of in denial, uh, you kind of surround yourself with that kind of soundtrack on a, on a daily basis. It's constantly evolving and that vo those voices are continually being amplified. Um, so yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, all right. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We hope to uh, talk to you guys again very soon. And like Josh said, please listen to the uh, the playlist and uh, comment and talk to us when you can. Uh, we appreciate your support. We'll see you guys later. Take care. <laughs>